You're listening to a Wheeler Centre podcast. I started researching about the history of food purely so that I had learned to appreciate all those people who came on my land, who lived here and who were othered and who are now dismissed for lots of reasons. And I just think food is, is the great unifier. Welcome back to Books and Ideas at Montalto. In this episode, Bhakti Puvanantharan speaks with celebrated restaurateur Asma Khan about Asma's culinary career, her new cookbook, and her philosophy of food as a conversation about our universal similarities. Hi. Um, thank you so much to Montalto and the Mitchells and Heidi for, for having us here. Um, my name's Bhakti Puvanantharan and uh, welcome to this luxurious moment. Um, this event is presented by the Wheeler Centre as part of its World of Words series and it's supported by the Melbourne City Revitalisation Fund, um, a Victorian Government and City of Melbourne Partnership. And I'd just also like to acknowledge Antipodes who are here selling books, so pay them a visit too. All right, with that out of the way, let's turn to the person we are all here for. Asma Khan is an award-winning chef, a best-selling cookbook author and the owner of London's famed Darjeeling Express restaurant. She sits on the London Mayor's Business Advisory Board, is an honorary fellow at Oxford University. And Asma is the first British chef to be profiled in Netflix Emmy-nominated series Chef's Table and the first chef to be nominated on Vogue's list of 25 most influential women. Best known for her all-female kitchen team and her commitment to social change, Asma is an unstoppable force in the hospitality industry and beyond. Make her welcome. So we are here today to celebrate this book as well as Asma. The book is Amul. It's just, it's just a. Go- I just want to take a moment to really appreciate the the craftsmanship of this book and how how beautiful it is. Um, you said that when you gave this book to your mother, she bowed to you. Yes. Um, can you tell us about your mother? What kind of woman is she? She's an incredibly powerful woman who shook the patriarchy around her, but with so much dignity and so much grace that no one really could take her on. Uh, I was just telling everybody at uh, our table that my mother would come back. uh, She never left the team behind. So she would return from an event because she was a caterer, uh, very unusual, the first girl woman in the family to work, to have a business. She would come back at three in the morning from an outdoor event sitting on the lid of the biryani pot that was huge at the back of a truck in her beautiful chiffon sari with diamonds. She'd just jump off. And of course, when the truck would arrive, that meant bones came. I wrote about this in the book. And all the street dogs from three streets down had, were chasing the truck and barking because my mother would bring back all the bones from the biryani and for the leftover food for the, for the dogs on the street. So they... So it was just pandemonium, the lights would come on and all the neighbors would look. But for a society, especially then in the 80s, who would have gossiped and talked? No one ever was hostile to my mother. She's that kind of person you cannot be hostile to. She's just kind and powerful and very collaborative and so humble that, yeah, she's, she was just incredible. 
And she bowed when you gave her the book. Yes, and I'm going to not cry uh, when I talk about it because in many cultures, uh, especially Asian cultures, there's a lot of hierarchy. And your elders are your elders, and you bow to them. The person who's older than you never bows to you. So it was very moving, and it was also hard for me to accept it, but I did, because I knew that that came from a place very special to her, that I'd written this book at a very difficult time, uh, in our family, separated by COVID, borders coming down. And I never wanted this book to be a memoir. I always had this book in me. I think we all have this book in us of dedicating it to this, the healer and the nourisher in our lives. If it's not your mother, it's some other female force who has made you who you are. And, uh, and I was able to actually get it published and give it to her. She understood how much this meant to me. It meant to me more than anything else that, that has happened in my life and probably anything that will happen after. So it was, it was important and yeah, I was, very, I was very touched and very emotional. Your mother, um, as you wrote, saw her business as a vehicle for good in the world and, you know, many people have said the same about you, that you use your business as a vehicle for good. What have you learned in the years uh, that you, since you started um, the restaurant as, and what have you learned about running a purpose-led business? It's challenging. The easy road to take is where you fit in, you comply, you network, and you're part of the all boys club, which is hospitality in most places, but definitely in England. It's, an, it's like an all boys club in Mayfair where women can come as guests. You're not a member. And uh, I've, I was on the fringes and I still am on the fringes. It doesn't matter how powerful you are or how well known you become or that fact that your restaurant is packed. If you are different in many ways, and I am, I celebrate the fact that I don't owe my existence, my success. I don't even have a PR company or a marketing person or publicist. I, I, I do my own social media. People know that they write to me. I reply. That I, I could focus on things that mattered. I didn't have to do. Uh, so after Chef's Table, which some of you may have seen, but I did a series, uh, an episode, in Netflix, a very big series. It was nominated for the Emmys, uh, for the James Beard Award as well, my episode. It, it catapulted me into this kind of international limelight. And I was offered things that I could have done anywhere, pop-ups around the world. I mean, someone would have probably taken me you know, to Mars if they could. I refused everything because I decided to focus on things that matter to me. Because I will go to my grave empty-handed I'm Muslim and we're wrapped in a coffin. All I need to afford is my coffin. I didn't feel that making money or doing things that were networking and being famous was important. The purpose of why I was there was so important to me that all the hardships, the difficulties, the financial difficulties, all of that pales in comparison to the fact that I'm driven by a passion to do something and I do it every day. And, and that's... Reflected in, in, you know, across the decisions you make, including how you pay your staff. And you've talked about how you value the dishwashers in your staff as much as or even more highly than anyone else. Yes, because I'm so tired of hospitality 
being, especially being dominated by these tormented geniuses, the single chef, the Van Goghs of the world who are then celebrated on primetime television being abusive and aggressive to women. And everyone thinks it's really cool. It's awful. It's appalling. And if your dish was, if the person who's washing your dishes doesn't turn up, you close the restaurant because you cannot be serving with dirty plates or you do one service and then you're dead because you cannot turn, no one has plates for dinner, lunch and dinner. And this is every restaurant. You know, you don't have, you know, you need people to wash glasses and to polish glasses. And so I get paid the same as my kitchen porter. Uh, when I'm in the kitchen, we are paid the same. We have a flat pay scale. Everybody gets paid the same hourly rate. Because if I had to earn more and be paid more, I would have to tell my kitchen porter that he's less deserving than me. I am more deserving of more money. And I know that this is not possible in many companies where there are hierarchies of payment and different structures. Inevitably, inevitably, women get paid less. Women of color get paid even less. So then this happens everywhere. In my business, everyone gets paid the same hourly rate when they're working in the kitchen. And I think that is allowed everyone to feel empowered enough that often I get asked to do things that I hate in the kitchen, but I can't argue because that's my hour in the kitchen and I have to do it. And I'm made to do terrible things. <laughs> I peel onions, you know, like didn't they find anyone else? But no one thinks that, you know, this is a bad use of my time because I'm being paid the same as them. They feel their time should be used more valuably. So I'm, I can't argue. It, it is a great, it liberates all of us from all hierarchy. I was, grew up in culture where it was always about hierarchy and who was more powerful, who was more pretty, who was more whatever. And in the kitchen, you pay everyone the same. My God, and you see who is powerful. The women who really come out. In the, and it's these women who are in my kitchen have had very tough lives. So they've been through abuse, you know, sexual abuse, all kinds of violations to their, to themselves, and they are now free. You've talked about, as a child, feeling the need to prove that you're smart, to distinguish yourself within your family. Do you think that they think you're smart now? I hope so. <laughs> I really hope so. It was actually, I also need to talk about the other reason why I had to prove that I was smart because I couldn't prove that I was pretty, because I was not pretty. I grew up in a family, uh, mainly of women, of very beautiful, fair, tall women, princess-like, graceful and extremely uh, beautiful. Kishwar, you met my sister. Yeah, she, she still- looks like you, Asma. No. <laughs> she, she, yeah, my sister looks, she's a year and a half older than me. She looks 10 years younger than me. That's a you know, story of my life. But because I was grown up with a lot of beautiful women, the presumption was that I was smart because I was dark and fat and ugly, as my aunts would keep telling me that. And the pretty fair skin, because we are, colorism is huge in our culture. How dark skinned you are, how fair skinned you are. People don't talk about it, but in families it destroys the confidence of the dark skinned girls. And I was always seen as a, so the family labeled me as a smart one. This is why when I went to Cambridge, I applied to study law because I thought smart people study law. I mean, the fact that I fell in love with the subject, I did a PhD in law and I got a doctorate in law was just coincidence. But I studied law because smart people study law. But this labeling of children, which happens in every culture, she's the smart one, she's the sporty one, you know, he's the kind of, he plays sports, this is the geek who will do tech stuff. 
Sometimes that person may be doing, wanting to do something else. And I just want to say one thing, which is very petty, but I'm going to say it. I, my entire childhood, I was told how ugly and fat I was. And then I, I was featured in Vogue, uh, wearing a sari that uh, the, India's biggest designer, Sabya Sachi, had made for me. I took it back to all my aunts, and I showed it to them. I'm in Vogue. I'm in Vogue. <laughs> and my mother was like, Asma, this looks so bad. I said, I don't care. I mean, allow, allow me this amount of pettiness. I don't have to be nice all my life. So I, I signed each copy of the book and I gave it to all my aunts who told me I was so fat and ugly that no one would marry me. Yeah, someone did marry me, but that was the thing. I was in Vogue. So, yeah. <laughs> so you showed them you're smart and beautiful. Yeah. I, I don't know about beautiful, but I feel I, I'm content inside. And I wasn't destroyed by the stones that people threw at me. I wasn't destroyed because my sister, who everyone thought was the most beautiful person in the family, would hold my hand every time my grandmother would tell me, you know, you look awful, you look disgusting, don't play in the sun, you'll get even darker and then no one will marry you. My sister would hold my hand and say that you will be this warrior princess called Jhansi Ki Rani in Indian uh, history. And she told me, you will be the warrior princess and everyone will bow down to you. I don't know whether that's come out true, but parts of it have. I am the warrior princess. She made me feel so beautiful. This is why even now, if you can do this for some other person, hold their hand and tell them that they will be something. It's a game changer. Changed my life. All that hatred didn't penetrate through because my sister, who everyone thought was so beautiful and so powerful, thought I was powerful. And it made me feel I was invincible. Thank you. So you speak a lot about your mother, but you are also a mother. So can you tell us what parenting has taught you about food? I'm sometimes confused how I produce two children who are so different. But <laughs> the one that doesn't like food, doesn't like Indian food, is embarrassed by me, is my husband, miniature. Because my husband was also not a huge fan of my food. And is not part of this whole story, which is great because he doesn't want to get involved in my business and he's out of <laughs> So my younger one is deeply embarrassed by who I am, what I do. My older one loves it. So he will eat, you know, early in the morning you ask him, do you want to have rice? He'll say yes. Asian mother's best kid. You know, your child wants to have rice in the morning. You're so happy. Oh my God, my younger one wants to eat nothing. And preferably from the takeaway. Chinese takeaway. Uh, he would love that. So it's very, it's, it's crazy. I realized that you like to think that, you know, children are going to be like you. They're not. Uh, my one child is from Mars. But <laughs> it's been interesting. And I only realized the challenges of what it is to be with my kids when COVID happened. Because from the, from the last 10 years, I missed every mealtime with my kids because I run a restaurant. So I, I never ate. And I realized how I would rather feed 200 people than my two kids. They were like, you know, this is what I cooked. Oh, is there anything else? No. <laughs> we are, this is a lockdown. You know, can we have eggs? No, we cannot get eggs. It was so hard. They're so ungrateful. <laughs> and they don't say thank you. And I think this is true with so many kids that they just eat and they don't have a conversation. So, yeah, COVID was really interesting because suddenly I realized, oh, my God. You know, please give me a, a whole room full of happy, grateful diners who will pay the bill, who will tip my staff and tell me how great I am. I mean, these kids were like, you know, oh, this is not so nice. Can you see a YouTube video and learn how to make lasagna? 
like, I don't know how to make lasagna. And I was like, and my kids asked, why don't you know? I said, do you know where I grew up? You know, why will I know how to make lasagna? Yeah, I learned from YouTube and I made it. And they said, oh, it's okay. I, my whole kitchen looked like a bomb site. I made the lasagna. They were like, oh, it's fine. This is what it is to cook for my kids. Yeah. yeah. But uh, I love them. I love them. Of course. I loved in the book, actually, t- talking about where you grew up. I loved reading about Calcutta. I loved reading about the markets and everyone in the family, the, the people your mum hired. It was just very vibrant the way you described Calcutta and the um tell us some, something surprising about the home your home city of Calcutta lots of people might not realize see Calcutta is really unusual it was the British capital I mean in the empire and Calcutta has got huge numbers of cuisines that are there because it was a port and it's a city with a big heart it's a city that is decaying uh, because we don't have, it's, we're not a Bombay and we're not a, we're not a Delhi. And I refuse to call Calcutta the new name because I hate it with that. So I'm still calling the old name. So it's a city with the most amazing food. Because it's, you know, you have the Armenians there. You've got, we had a huge Jewish community. We had people who came from different backgrounds. We've got Chinatown. Uh, only Chinatown in, in India is in Calcutta because we had people who came in. The Hakas were there from the 17th century. And then when the Dalai Lama fled into India and into Dar es Salaam, you had a lot of people came from Tibet. So you've got, it's a, it's a melting pot of so many different cuisines. If you have not been to Calcutta, please go. And you will love the food and you will love this old architecture. And those who've been to London, it looks like London. It looks like London before the bombing. Um, uh, so it's just beautiful. Yeah. Um, you're so knowledgeable about Indian history and specifically the history of Indian food. How do do you research it and how did you kind of develop that knowledge? I think you have a responsibility to understand history. Uh, I think that, you know, uh, it's very important. It's frightening when you see uh, regimes rewriting history books, as is happening in India now, where they're removing sections uh, in in the attempt to make the curriculum more brief, but you remove an entire, you know, dynasty because their religion is unacceptable to, the, to you right now. So these are frightening things. And I just think that I, in, my, in my first book I wrote, and I got a lot of flack for this, that the British got cauliflower to Calcutta, to the east. They also got main crop potatoes and peas and peppers and all of that. So aloo gobi mutter, which is this great Indian dish, our very vegetarian prime minister and, uh, and all our vegetarian people love to eat it. It's British. And I said that and there was like, hell had broken loose. What is the problem if you want, don't, if you acknowledge the contribution? It's a crop they got to your country. The fact that you were making it doesn't make it fusion, but there's no harm in saying that cauliflower was got in 1930s as early as now to, to Calcutta. And I have no space for xenophobia, for hatred. It's a privilege to eat. Many of us forget that. And I did the research so I knew, why do I have chickpeas? We call chickpeas in India, Kabuli Chana. Chana is, of course, chickpea. It came from Kabul. It came through Khyber from Egypt. And just to know that and to say it, it's more humbling it takes away this whole idea that of superiority that seems to smack through a lot of cuisines that 
Oh, we are so elevated. This is ours. Even samosa is not ours. And I wrote that in, in my book and there was like, oh, this is not true. It's there in a text. They captured some Lebanese pirates who made the samosa for the Sultan of Delhi and he let them off because he loved it so much. And then, the, of course, samosa came into India. There's no harm. Uh, I think the arrogance with food is a problem. And I started researching about the history of food purely so that I, I had learned to appreciate all those people who came on my land, who lived here, and who were othered, and who are now dismissed for lots of reasons. And I just think food is, is the great unifier. There's a bit of English glamour to some of your recipes. There's a recipe for lavender sun dish. Is that how you say it? Yes. Which it looks like soap, yardly soap. Yes. Um, so how does England inspire you? How does your new home inspire you? Calcutta is very, very English in lots of ways. Uh, we have a strong tradition. If you arrive in Calcutta on Christmas Eve, you will be confused where you are. I mean, everyone is celebrating like this is the greatest festival in their lives. Calcutta celebrates New Year's and, you know, on, and I sang in a choir. Oh, I've never said this publicly. Yeah, I sang in the choir at St. Paul's Cathedral uh, my entire school life. Uh, I, I, I loved to sing and I was in the choir and I sang and no one cared that I was Muslim and, you know, I was in the choir in the church. I sang on, on Christmas Eve. There's a, and I think it helped that in the 80s, we had a Marxist government who kept religion out of everything. So it was great. It was open-hearted and, so you, you could do and be anything. And they even didn't try and obliterate and wipe out uh, the kind of presence of the British who were there. So, yeah, the lavender sandwich. So I, used to, I, I described in the book, there was a, fan, a shop in Newmarket, which is a really great market. Uh, so foreign soaps were kept in a glass cupboard. I didn't have the money to buy the Yardley soap. But I was asked to see it and I have to smell it and they used to put it back. <laughs> he knew I was going to buy it. He knew I had the money. But... Yeah, and then I used, I was making this for the book and I just thought, oh my God, I'm going to add this lavender, which is very British, because this reminds me. So I ate Sandesh in Calcutta, but I added, so I, it's not, they're very, there's no fusion in there, but I changed the aroma of the normal flower that you would use to pay a tribute to my city, my people, and those who were there before. So London really is your city. How is it recovering now from, from lockdowns and all of that? We have a great mayor. We have idiots running the country. <laughs> so the problem is that we are now hostage to stupid people. And uh, we are at the moment in, in definitely in recession. Uh, and it's very hard. But there's something beautiful about London. I think that you can be anything you want to be in London. The, the food scene, thank God for immigrants. Otherwise, English food is uh, <laughs> challenging. And the massive kind of, the growth of restaurants, you have every kind of cuisine. The best Indian food, I would say this side of Khyber, the Khyber Pass, because there, there are all these, there was mass kind of migration at different times uh, into, into England uh, for, at different periods. And they bought their cuisine and, you know, you'll never find, like I, when my mother comes to London, I don't take her to an Indian restaurant, I take her to Nando's. She's very happy because I don't get Indian restaurant. She said, what is this? Because Indian food, my God, some of it is like, yeah, 
unrecognizable. Uh, <laughs> but we then have all these kind of absolutely ethnic food, original regional dishes. So Lond London is a great place. London allows you to be anything. And people ask me, oh, what passport do you have? I said, I'm a Londoner. For me, that is, that is my identity. I've lived there now for many, I have lived in England longer than I have lived in India. That surprises people. I still wear shalwar kameez. I'm accented. Uh, but you can be anything. No one really judges you in London. And those who judge you, I mean, too bad. I feel pity for them. Because <laughs> they obviously don't have a life. Uh, so yeah, it's, it's, it's a great place to live. It's a great place to be. And I don't think I could have done my business any other place. We are the only all-female kitchen cooking Indian food at this level. You know, you pay 150 pounds for dinner at my place uh, in the world. You don't have an all-female kitchen in India cooking at this level. And obviously, um, it has been a, a difficult few years, but um, obviously, people have come back to the restaurant in droves, haven't they? Yes. I'm, I, I never take that for granted. I, I'm nervous. I'm twitching in the past, which is you know, where you dispatch the food and where I often work. And I'm nervous, even though I see all the bookings. Then I start feeling relieved that I sat and then the whole restaurant fills up and you hear all the, ch the noise that comes through from people speaking. And the, you can hear the tones and you know that everyone's happy and they're eating. I, every day, I'm grateful to God that I'm able to cook and feed a room full of people. This really feels like a privilege and it's got back to normal, but not for everybody. I'm very lucky. Thank God for Americans. <laughs> who, are, who are coming and spending money in London because British people are not spending money. We have a huge problem going on now with inflation running at 30% of our food. Wages have frozen. We've got everyone going on strike from junior doctors to everyone. And I really support them because their salaries are not keeping up. They cannot afford to live in London. If, and, you know, they need that, you know, and this whole idea that they have to go on strike so that they can actually feed their kids. We have, you know, poverty now, food poverty in our country, and everyone's uncomfortable talking about it, but it's a reality that many kids come to school in the morning without having breakfast. In England, this is a developed country, and we have kids who are hungry. So it's, it's, a, it's a crazy time right now. I'm, I'm very lucky the Americans come in because of Chef's Table and other I have, and it's also very, it helps a lot that you have all the Hollywood stars arriving and eating at the restaurant, and that then brings the restaurant more into kind of uh, it's highlighted in places uh, where I normally would not have access to actually try and speak to people there. So it, it is, I'm very grateful, but I'm very conscious all the time that it's not so easy in hospitality right now. This is what people are cutting back on, on going to restaurants. Yeah. So do people ask you for advice with, if they are starting a restaurant and what do, what do you tell them if they do? I, I get asked a lot uh, uh, for, for advice. I'm always very open and because I'm very easy to get access to because you just have to write to me on social media and I'll reply. I, I've had, and I, I used to, in the old restaurant, uh, we're just going to start doing that now. I would give my entire restaurant, so I would be the waitress, my staff would come in all for free to cooks, home cooks, women who wanted to cook, and entire money would be theirs. And of those people, five have gone on to open restaurants, their own restaurants. Uh, I really think that we need to change the whole balance of power. This has to be with us coming on stage, becoming powerful, not by sh 
sexual shriek going on kind of and berating people we need alliances with men with empathetic men but we also need to have a collect collective and this collaboration between women this is how we'll win we cannot work against each other so i said my interest even if, and i helped women open restaurants opposite my restaurant so that i could help them i don't see anyone as my competition for me it is really about trying to lift more women up into hospitality and it it matters a lot to me what have you made of the hospitality scene in in australia that you've been able to see i what i've seen i've loved i'm just so impressed my god the produce because this is the great thing that the produce is celebrated uh i mean of course today we've all had this incredible meal where the the chefs have really hit out the park they've just done beautiful but so much of the produce is from here and i've i've went to another restaurant in sydney where they also had kind of local produce i went to a farm place where i was i saw tomatoes being grown and this holiday they kind of ah smelled so incredible and in in supermarkets in in england you know you hold a tomato next to you it's not a smell of anything and uh so yeah i i've i'm impressed i'm also happy to see a lot of women involved in hospitality uh so it's 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 great but also the land is so beautiful yeah. i mean it's time going to stop raining but it's uh, <laughs> even when it was raining it was beautiful it was. so i have really loved it i came here only knowing through cricket because <laughs> i'm obsessed with cricket so i watched i mean so i've been to all the cricket grounds before i went anywhere else <laughs> I, i had to you know i i i visited all the outside stood outside all the cricket grounds you know saying oh my god but it's 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 a more it's more beautiful more green more uh fresh and fragrant than i had thought so it's i've loved it yes quite well we do have time now for the audience um to ask asma some questions so please have a start to think about that um let yeah so do you want to talk about um your favorite recipes or the ones that have kind of come up a lot since you published the book the chicken biryani is uh for us biryani is always when at least 100 people come to your door so you don't make biryani for small things but my mother would make this biryani whenever i got into trouble like i failed maths or i bunked school and got caught in my school uniform somewhere where i shouldn't have been all of those i got into trouble a lot i wasn't made a prefect everyone was why am i to make school captain i was made school vice captain because they couldn't ignore me because i did a lot of stuff in the kitchen so i was made vice captain uh but because yeah i got in a lot of trouble and the biryani used to be made by my mother for me it's a really simple recipe the prawn biryani the chicken biryani these are a lot of people make them because if you have not made biryani it's very challenging and then you put a lot of effort in and some doesn't work out the one thing about these two biryani recipes they work if you never made biryani these will work and there's a there's a prawn dish which is something that is made in bangladesh and in uh, west bengal it's the prawn malai curry but we have the most incredible seafood which you have in this country too so this is a golda chingri malai curry made with coconut milk and that's a wonderful recipe because you can use lobsters you can use scallops you can do anything with it but the seaf there are very nice seafood dishes but most of that because this, the book is divided into chapters the first chapter is a lot of kind of so the prawn so the the little you have the, the chingri chop which is the prawn chop so those are the kinds of things in the first thing which are small easy so it's not a huge amount of like you know you made a lot of effort it didn't work out you can fry one and you can eat it 
So I've, I've done that. I've put all those recipes in. So literally hold your hand and take you through this. By the end of it, you can be making magic. So you know, these kinds of things where you sm make a small amount, then you can adjust the seasoning. Because I learned to cook as an adult in the West, in a Western kitchen. That's a huge advantage because when I'm telling people how to cook, I understand the limitations of space, of equipment, even you know, in the celebration thing, I know that you possibly have one oven and you have three hops. One hop is always inaccessible, it doesn't work. So I, 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 know this is, I understand the reality of home cooking. Yeah. So this is a book not to impress people and not that you have a, you know, a wood fire. I know everyone doesn't have a wood fire. So it's, it's really kind of simplifying and giving you lots of stuff that you can make for barbecues. So lots of kebabs that are there that are easy to make, then easy for entertaining because you can marinate it and you know, get someone else hopefully to try and make the kebab to you and not burn it. And so it's, it's a book, it's really taking, it, there's, there's a recipe for every occasion in your life. That I can tell you for sure. I, I hope everyone has a copy now because I want to cook everything from it. Do we have any questions from the audience to get us going? First of all, this is such an honour to um, hear you speak. I think I, without you crying, I had a little quiet little <laughs> tear um, when you're talking about being amazing and powerful. So talking about that, I think um, what is it like now you're on the other side where you've had chef's table and you have royalty like Paul Rudd and Malala Yusuf comes to your restaurant. How did you pull through those times beforehand where you were doing what you were doing and you're still doing exactly what you were doing before, but now you see that accolade and fame? And what can other people do um, in that space to bring, I guess, that respect to this sort of food that is often... I'd say overlooked, but when we look at the hierarchy of food, it doesn't um, sort of stack up to French cuisine. And they say, why would I pay 150 pounds to eat biryani where I can go to a French restaurant in London? So what's that experience been like? That's a really good question. And I often talk about this, that there is, there is racism, there's bias. The whole question that, you know, someone would pay a lot of money for a French tasting menu, for Japanese food, for Korean food but they would think that this is not something they want to pay for Indian food. This is their bias. It's pure bias because I come from such an ancient culinary tradition and spicing it perfectly requires skill. But because people feel this is a curry that you would go up because you want to have a hangover or you just go out and get drunk and you're going to have this vindaloo and rice, it, is, it has dismissed us and reduced our, our cuisine to nothing. And that's not the case. And your question about the fact that I have not changed what I was making then and now, I got a lot of pushback. I was mentioning earlier that, you know, everyone has got to know me when I became successful. You didn't know me when I failed. When I spent an entire evening in a pub doing a pop-up when no one bought anything from me. And I had to walk up and through an empty dining room back to my kitchen and know that I'd come back the next day because I wasn't willing to fight and lose this way. It was very tough and there are many hurdles that we hit. We hit them not just as a collective of women, but it's to do with the color of our skin, our cuisine, the bias. And one thing that doesn't help at all is that the Indian restaurants that have got Michelin stars that are seen as fine dining, have twisted the cuisine into some 
morphed thing. So they make it look very French. They dissect a dish so that the meat is sitting and the gravy is in a, in a sauce boat. And, and I say this, you know, we, my skin is brown, our food is brown. You don't need to hide this and camouflage it. This comes from a lack of inner confidence. This also comes from the fact that most of the people cooking are men. They learned to cook in culinary school where they were taught the traditional ways of cooking, the French methods of cooking. Women who cook learned at home. They learned from their mothers. They understood the laughter and the banter and the beat when women cook together. Not just in my culture, Italian, Spanish, French. You know, you go to Ireland, Christmas, Easter, all of this gathering of women and cooking together. Of course, in all of these cultures, men get served first. Women eat last. And women are the ones who are cooking. And there are all these things that do unite us. But somehow, we are seen as less sophisticated. And this also has to do with bias and racism. That this is, we as people are seen as less sophisticated. I'm not even willing to go into this conversation about, you know, why and how. I introduced a tasting menu at a ridiculously high price in my last restaurant um, in Covent Garden before I moved. And everybody told me, no one's going to buy. Within minutes, we were sold out. And I'm, I think that it, I did cry when that happened. Even with all the politics and with all the so-called fame and having had a high profile, even I was doubtful that this, the fact that I'm pricing myself even higher than most other French restaurants in that entire area, which is you know, Covent Garden, is an expensive place to eat. Uh, and that people were willing to pay. I think that change will happen, but it will not happen so soon. And I think that you know you winning and you being so prominent and people recognizing you is also a sign of a change that you know you you have we've had master chef winners in in uh, in England who are from South Asia and so there is there is change change definitely happening I hope inshallah I live long enough to see that change do we have any other questions from the audience thanks very much thank you really really entertaining um, just a quick question because I really don't know your family history but it's very interesting with a I think grandmother that you said who really didn't elevate your status <laughs> and having very strong female um, role models around you and your sisters and what have you I'm lucky enough to be one of seven I've got four sisters <laughs> as well and have had wonderful matriarchs in my lifetime and I'm lucky enough now to have four granddaughters. So I'm just thinking, I want them to be able to cook. And I'm a very basic home cook, but they're young, but I want to start them young as well. So what do you think would be a really good way to start getting these little treasures into the kitchen? I think paratha. Paratha is great. It's messy. It requires lots of flour, which will go everywhere. And, you know, there are, there are recipes here, but you can also find other recipes online. Uh, they're great for kids because then once they make the paratha, they can add their own toppings to your jam, marmite, oh, <laughs> some do, and uh, peanut butter, honey. I love plain sugar, just sugar that melts. I think they're great because in the, this bread, uh, you can't really go wrong. And it's not, you know, it's very hard when you're very young to make, you know. So it's, it's like an Indian version of, of a cookie or a, or a crepe. And you 
you can burn it, yes. It can be raw, but mostly it'll work. At least some of them will work, and then everyone can eat that, that once that work out. <laughs> so that's a great way. Try parathas with your kids and your grandkids. Any other questions before we wrap up? We have one over here. Hi there, it's been great. Um, I've got a question, I don't know if you can really answer it, but you know, the eating scene in Melbourne, I don't know if you really know it, but it's a lot of the same kind of butter chicken, all the kind of vindaloos and things like that. I'm wondering if there are any places that you could say are in your kind of vein of cooking in so Melbourne. So unfortunately, I don't know. I've yeah. heard that there is this kind of, there's a lot of generic style of Indian food. It's really worrying because the thing is that it's like saying I'm going to go and have American food or I'm going to have European food. What are you eating? But everyone thinks there's something called Indian food. Every three villages you go to in India, they temper the dal differently. It's very regional. It's very, very personal family style. Families are very important. It's what you cook at home. It's what your mom cooks in your nani who's your maternal grandmother these are important people in the families with the food so this indian cooking came up with people who have not cooked with women in their families they have no idea and the, this comes from also their attempt to cater to a cuisine for the host country so this whole of you know chicken tikka masala was ketchup and cream was added to a genuinely indian dish a kebab which the customer thought was too dry so he decided to, oh, let's moisten it up by adding ketchup and cream. And everybody loves it. And some of the kormas that you have in, in London are like sherbet. They are so sweet. You go to a, you know, you go to Dhaka, you go to Calcutta and you have korma. Totally different, delicate, so fragrant, so, I mean, beautifully made. This kind of stuff is, and multicolored rice, oh my God, I hate that. <laughs> so it, it, it's, it's a, I, I, I think that there, there are very few that you will find authentic restaurants. I always hesitate to say authentic because you understand that a lot of labor, money has gone into it, you want the restaurants. I absolutely do not try and get into criticizing restaurants, in, especially in, in, in England. I know how hard it is. Also, I, I think that they change the palate of a nation, at least in England. We have first advantage, we always have first advantage. Indian food will be supreme always because that's the first exotic taste that a lot of people had in their childhood and this, that's the flavor they will go back to. So whether they were murdering the actual recipes, I'm less critical because I stand on their shoulders. I stand on the shoulders of giants. You know, people criticize the Salatis, the Bangladeshis, calling themselves Indian and running restaurants. I'm so proud of what they did. In a very racist and hostile England of the 60s, they created an empire of restaurants. They generated wealth. They hired all their family. They didn't go to the government and ask for money. They created an industry where they faced horrendous racism and hostility. And so even though the food is uninteresting and contrived, I still have huge respect to them and my salam to all these people who created this genre of food, however odd and and, and the same thing here, everyone has told me this, that, oh my God, in Australia, most of the restaurants have this fusion kind of confusion uh, of what they are. The world is big enough, you know, we just have to think. But I just think that if more women were involved, those who cooked in their own families, I think you'd see a change. Problem is that too many men, men in hospitality cooking. 
Can I recommend somewhere? Yes. Um, there's a restaurant in North Melbourne called Manze, M-A-N-Z-E, and it's uh, run by Mauritian guy with um, South Asian heritage. Um, and I, I'm, I'm Sri Lankan Tamil, and a lot of the flavors, flavors were very familiar to me. I, I just loved it. And they've just expanded. They're doing really well. So that's my recommendation. I almost spent the last night, but I didn't in the end. That's where I was told by everybody to go, but I, I unfortunately hadn't eaten there. But yeah, I've heard from everybody told me to go there. Yeah. yeah. All right. Well, we might leave it there. Um, Asma, I can't tell you how important you've been to me. Um, in, I watched your chef's kitchen. It was probably start of COVID, and knowing that someone like you can can be exalted for staying true. The, the way that you stay true to yourself in a world that really wants you not to do that, it's, um, it's very meaningful and it's, it's just such a pleasure to see you just soar. And, um, yeah, I wish, you, I wish you so much success and I want to thank you for being so open with all of us today and sharing your stories. So thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. You've been listening to Bhakti Puvanantharan in conversation with Asma Khan. It was recorded on Thursday, 25th of May, 2023, as part of World of Words at Montalto. The Wheeler Centre podcast is produced on the lands of the Wurundjeri Woiwurrung people of the Kulin Nation. You can listen to more podcasts or explore videos, news and our full calendar of events at wheelercentre.com.